Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast which brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as the best insight analysis and all the topics you're talking about in the game. I'm Ian McGarry and with me as always is Duncan Castles and on today's pod we will be giving you all of the analysis and also the fallout from of course Sunday's big Premier League match between Manchester United and Liverpool followed by of course Valerie, our old friend, causing controversy and provoking one ex-Premier League uh, referee to call it an absolute embarrassment to the Premier League itself. Heroes and Villains will t- cap us off for today, but Duncan, as always, we start with some news. Last week, we uh, brought you the uh, breaking news that um, Manchester United were indeed attempting to lure in a potential buyer uh, for all of the Glazer family's shares. Uh, I think the phrase we used was, you can't catch a fish without bait. And of course, that bait was Kevin Glazer. Um, converting B shares into A shares uh, and under SEC rules on the New York Stock Exchange. But Duncan, it's, it's elevated a little bit uh, since then, and you've got news of a potential meeting between said family and the primary person we expect to bid for the club in Saudi Arabia. Yes, um, this is news that uh, Manchester United will be sending a delegation to Saudi Arabia next month. Um, to attend the um, Future Investment Initiative conferences that uh, the Saudi Arabian uh, government, um, Saudi Arabian royal family, um, under the auspices of a public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, host on an annual basis. This is something that the Glazers have attended in the past. Um, They have strong relationships in the country. Um, The interest in Saudi Arabia in Manchester United is long-standing. We talked about this in the podcast last year. Essentially, Saudi Arabia has seen what Qatar have done with Paris Saint-Germain and what Abu Dhabi, um, their regional allies, have done with Manchester City and are keen to follow a similar strategy in the sense of buy a football club, use it as a um, marketing tool for the country, have your uh, the country's name associated with that team's performances in European football, as has become the case with Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain, um, and use it also for political purposes, um, the leverage that having control of a significant chunk of the world's most popular game um, can uh, afford you. And remember, Saudi Arabia isn't simply interested in um, getting hold of a football club in the European game. It also has uh, involvement with FIFA president Gianni Infantino and has been offering funding to FIFA Um, funding that could be very important to Infantino uh, in terms of securing his presidency um, and control of FIFA going forward uh, for an expanded Club World Cup. Uh, Again, parallels what Abu Dhabi and Qatar have done in terms of having an extensive reach across sport. Um, Talking to people in the city, they uh, reiterate that the, the, the interest from Saudi Arabia is long-standing. Um, there have been suggestions that they may come back 
and put a formal offer in for the club, which currently is valued on the US, uh, one of the US stock markets at about $2.6 billion. Um, in the coming months. However, uh, as far as they know, no further bid has been made at this stage. Um, remember the valuation has declined significantly across um, the last year, I think by over 30% in terms of share price. But share price is essentially just an indicator, as we discussed in the podcast. Um, if it gets to the point where a, um, a buyer with the finances um, that Saudi Arabia have is ready to make a proper offer for the, for the Glazers' control of the club, then the Glazers will essentially be able to demand the price far higher or in, in excess of that stock market price because they control the vote-owning shares, those B-class shares that you mentioned that just one of the six siblings has chosen to convert to the, the lower um, voting rights A-class shares. Um, and they can then decide for themselves whether they want to sell or not at that moment. Obviously, there, there, there can be external influence upon this. We see the Glazers Out movement um, again um, chartering a plane to fly above Old Trafford and uh, remind Ed Woodward and the Glazers of their discontent with the way the club is being run. This time, the, the banner read, Ed still failing Woodward out. Um, before the match and just after kickoff, um, that group has been putting pressure on uh, Manchester United sponsors in a in a in an environment in which uh, commercial revenue has stalled at Manchester United, and they expect uh, the club's income uh, to fall next season. So those things can also have an impact, but um, I think fundamentally this comes down to a decision from the Glazer family. Um, as to whether any offer they get for the club is uh, enough profit for them to uh, get rid of what is kind of a, a must be an irritation for them in terms of the, the response to their um, handling of the club. But remember, is also a significant source of annual revenue for them with that, um, you know, the gold pot that is going to arrive at a certain point um, should they decide to sell to a bidder um, such as Saudi Arabia. Given the, I think it's fair to say, consistent um, criticism and protest has been against the Glazers' ownership of the club, Duncan, uh, over the 13 years or so that they have been in charge, um, this now feels like it's a case of when and not if they will sell and the amount of um, information that we're getting from people in the city, from sources close to Manchester United and the Glazers, appears to be that they are now actively seeking a buyer for the club rather than when they've been approached, which they have been in the past on at least three occasions, um, have rejected offers outright. Now, when you're dealing with people who have money, the problem always is that if you don't need it, then why would you sell for a lesser stake than you could get sometime in the future? But again, with the um, projection that revenues will decline next season, uh, as we mentioned uh, in the last 10 days, uh, the Chevrolet deal will not be renewed, etc., etc. The team are continually underperforming and therefore the prestige value of Manchester United has been affected 
uh, in terms of uh, not winning trophies and in fact not even appearing in the Champions League, which is a big source of revenue as well and guaranteed revenue. As I said, it does seem to me to be almost, a, we're, we're entering into a period of inevitability. Now, I know that'll be music to the ears of a lot of Manchester United fans and we can't guarantee it, but it does feel different this time, Duncan. Look, there's certainly noises in that direction, but I think it's dangerous to make assumptions with the Glazers. The one thing we know about that family is they're very stubborn in terms of uh, charting their own course when it comes to the ownership of major um, sporting operations. Uh, they own the MFL franchise, um, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, which has been, um, I think, any American football expert will tell you spectacularly unsuccessful in recent years, but has increased significantly in value and has been profitable for the Glazers. And um, they they have retained ownership through that period. Uh, they've been through a period in the past of the green and gold movement, challenges from Manchester United supporters to their ownership, and they rode through that storm uh, and have only seen the value of the asset um, they secured with the assistance, uh, has to be said, of, of the current executive vice chairman, Ed Woodward, um, increase since then. So I, I think it's dangerous to assume that pressure on them will be the, 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 a force that forces them to sell up. I think they'll do it when it suits their interests um, and when the money is right for them. So you do need that big offer to come in from somewhere um, that they say, well, actually, um, this is such a large uh, offer for the, for the football club. It makes sense to take significant profit now and um, and give up on the, the, the regular dividends and director's fees we take from the club. On the other side of this equation, of course, is it is an incredible asset, Manchester United. It, it's operating profits. Um, base operating profits when you strip out the costs of servicing the, the still very substantial debt uh, that's left on Manchester United books because of the way um, the club was bought by the Glazers in a, in a leverage buyout is bigger than any other club in world football. Um, so you have that immense um, capacity to generate revenue even with the problems they have with the team, with the squad, with the management structure, with the scouting operation that they've been boasting about so much recently. Um, despite the fact from top to bottom there are issues in the club, from a financial perspective, it's a hugely attractive prospect because if you come in and you have the money to, to remove that debt burden and... Uh, and reorganise the team, reorganise the, the, the management structure, you have very large annual revenues that you can put into the team each year to solve those problems and get them back to a level which they should be at, which is competing for the Premier League, um, realistically competing for the Premier League each season and realistically competing for the Champions League. We will, of course, uh, not just be bringing the news first, but keeping across all developments regarding Manchester United and potential takeovers as well as of course the Glazers position on that and indeed that future investment meeting which happens in Saudi Arabia uh, in November. Um, a little bit more transfer news for you uh, today and that is that as we know Manchester United are desperately in need of a point striker 
they are prepared to invest in January in that. We brought you the short list on the transfer window. But interestingly, uh, an escalation in their um, interest in Timo Werner, the RB Leipzig striker, has occurred in the last two days uh, in that we understand that United have now been in touch, not just with Werner's representatives, but also with RB Leipzig, his club, regarding a fee and what it would take to get him out of uh, German's Bundesliga and to Old Trafford in January. Uh, that's something which would be obviously uh, a huge advantage and a, and a big boon for Ole Gunnar Solskjaer regarding the second half of the season. Um, Duncan, we talked about obviously two Dembele's, uh, Musa and Usman. We, we discounted Usman in terms of injuries. Musa, we believe that it, obviously um, Leonard difficult club to negotiate with, especially in January. What do you think of Werner and his chances, or indeed of United's chances of getting Werner in January? I think I think it's obviously a credible option for them. I think the difficulty there is to persuade Werner that Manchester United is the right club to come to. We know Werner is a is a player who's been admired by Bayern Munich for a long time. Um, if Bayern Munich uh, make the calculation that Werner is a player they want for next season, um, then obviously they could come into that equation and say. Uh, to Werner, don't go to Manchester United. We will be signing you in the summer. Um, uh, so choose us instead. And remember, Bayern Munich um, in the past season made um, a couple of very significant purchases well ahead of the summer transfer window, um, spending club record sums on uh, on defensive acquisitions who they knew they wanted for this summer. So recent. Bayern Munich activity has been such that if they get into a situation where they feel they need to secure a player that they've identified as being the right man for them um, and, and doing a deal early on, they, they haven't been uh, shy about getting themselves into that situation. So I think that's the, the, the complicated part for Manchester United if they decide that Werner is the one they prefer over Moussa Dembele um, and Moussa Dembele for sure is interested in joining Manchester United it is a club appeals to him playing in the Premier League is a very live option for him it's something that he's targeted in his career so in terms of the, the, the club to individual deal um, in Dembele's case it will be a simpler process if if they decide he is the right man they go for. And I think it was interesting after after the the one one draw with Liverpool, um, where Marcus Rashford I think had a very very good first half. Um, obviously scored the goal, took his chance well, um, got himself into good position to to finish that. But I think generally was very effective um, at using the clever tactics that Solskjaer had implemented to take advantage of, of Liverpool's um, shape uh, a break in between the, the, the full-back and, and the centre-back with um, Daniel James doing the same on the other side and, and, and confusing um, Liverpool's defence that way. I think there was an instance in which um, uh, Rashford went one-on-one with Virgil van Dijk and, and basically uh, bullied Van Dijk off the ball um, and left Van Dijk on the turf, which you don't see very often. So a, a really good performance from Rashford. But I think interesting the discussion post-match um, with Gary Neville sort of championing um, Rashford and saying, "Look, that's a, that's a great sign for Solskjaer, and he's showing what he what he has to be." And and 
basically being shouted down by Graham Souness saying, well, you, you can't take one goal from um, uh, after a series of blanks from a striker and decide that, that Rashford is, is the answer. And, and, uh, and also a very uh, pertinent comment from Jose Mourinho when he was asked um, what kind of striker Manchester United should go for and, and his response was if your objective is to build a team and to say all the time that the objective of the team is the future, the long term, the future, the long term, the kids, the young players and you hide behind that, then you don't need to buy a striker. Then play Mason Greenwood, um, then give Mason Greenwood time to grow up because he is a kid with potential and um, I think that gets very much to the heart of where Manchester United have set themselves up at present with this story of um, it's going to take several years to fix the problems we have and we are only going to buy uh, players that absolutely suit our long-term plan. Um, I think Mourinho is right there. If, if it is about this this um, long-term uh, developed youth, etc., then why not just stick with Rashford and Greenwood. But if you want results, you clearly are going to have to sign a, a different kind of striker. And, and it'll be interesting to see the noises from Manchester United, the noises from Solskjaer very much are they will do it in January, but it'll be interesting to see if they actually commit and how much they're prepared to commit to that purchase. Observations on Rashford for me yesterday, Duncan, um, are that uh, it's almost like Solskjaer well, I'm sure he did watch Rashford play for England in the uh, year of 2020 qualifiers, where he continually um, made runs to the back post, almost hiding from the cross. Uh, I'd not say hiding as such, but but not exactly making a huge effort to actually run across his defender, get to the front post and get to the ball first. Instead, he was very guilty of ambling and then making a late run to the back post, where, of course, the chances of meeting any cross are greatly um, re reduced from uh, what you would normally get. Now, um, what I noticed yesterday was that the goal he scored, he actually, um, he duped Matip because he ran across him to the front and then double-backed uh, mm -hmm. across his left side to where he got a, a clear and free hit at the ball. And that those for me were the instincts of an actual striker, someone who actually, uh, you know, had thought about or instinctively knew what to do. Because Matt has been in great form for Liverpool, as we know, and I think that showed him a difference in his game. Um, I know that he um, made some uh, apologies to Manchester United fans after the defeat by Newcastle, and uh, so I, I thought he looked kind of reinvigorated. Uh, certainly in the first half yesterday, I thought he played very well and fitted into what was um, Solskjaer's tactical plan, of course, which was to block off Liverpool's full-backs using uh, a back five, effectively, three in midfield and two up front. And we see Daniel James get loose for that particular, for that for the goal uh, cross itself. Andy Robertson finds himself isolated. Wijnaldum's not run back. And, and what Rashford did, as I said, in very intelligently was he sent Matt up the wrong way. He dummied him inside, went to the back, the cross was good and it was a, a simple tap-in. Now, that has to be um, not just encouraging but a huge improvement uh, in Solskjaer's, I think, both application and uh, his ability to change his game in order to 
work through the the problems that he's had because statistics tell us that he scored only 35% of his Premier League goals against the top six. That's 11 goals and 65% against anyone outside of that, which is uh, 20 goals. Yeah, it's encouraging. And um, obviously the result is very encouraging for um, for Solskjaer for Manchester United um, and you have to credit him for coming up with a system that um, that caused Jurgen Klopp big problems and which Jurgen Klopp didn't probably properly resolve until the last 15 minutes of the match when he went to 4-4-2 and and gave himself uh, and, and took Henderson off and gave himself two um, players on each wing capable of going past the the Manchester United wing back, which is generally the solution you you you, you should implement when you're playing against a back five is uh, is get two men against the wing back and and exploit the weaknesses there and 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 get the ball into the the box, which is what they eventually did the the. the you know the quandary for Liverpool, and I think the, the the thing that will perplex or should perplex their supporters is that it took Klopp so long to solve that problem. But credit to Solskjaer for for coming up with a system that worked and being pragmatic about the game, um, setting up defensively uh, and and playing on the counter. What you have to remember is that's what suits the personnel he has, and and it's absolutely what suits Marcus Rashford as a striker is to to play with a system in which he, he is expected to counter-attack and can expect the ball in front of him with space to run onto. That's that's his skill. That's, uh, that's the best part of his game. So no surprise that he ends up being the goal scorer in that match. And again, we said in the podcast on, on Friday that this was perhaps the kind of game where Solskjaer could get a result because Liverpool... Um, were obviously the stronger team, obviously better in attack. He would people wouldn't complain if he played pragmatically against them and got a result. His team, his squad, is built around a counter-attacking strategy that, that it's set up to play that way. So if you're set up to play counter-attacking football, you want the other team to come to you, um, which is what Liverpool did. Um, and what you, you'd expect to happen. The issue for Solskjaer is you can say, OK, well, he's now found a system that works. Um, if he plays that system against most of the teams in the Premier League, it won't work because they won't come on to him and they won't attack and uh, he won't score enough goals, he won't win enough games. Um, you can only play that way against a certain type of opponent. When you're Manchester United and you're expected to dominate games and win the majority of your games you have to have multiple ways of doing that and you have to be able to play against packed defenses um, and find ways of breaking the opposition down that aren't just uh, uh, limited to we can we get the ball in the counter-attack and we run in quickly behind them and that's that's basically how manchester united have scored most of their goals against um, Premier League opposition this season and there, let's face it, there will be many of them this season. You've got that 1-4-0 win against Chelsea which is actually an example of um, the majority of the goals being counter-attacking goals against a team who were playing very open and uh, and trying to force the pace of the game. So a good Sunday for Solskjaer but um, fundamentally I don't think anything has changed um, in terms of where Manchester United are as a team and where we would expect them to finish up 
um, over the course of the season if they continue to play this style of football. I go back, Duncan, to the um, Ed Woodward mantra, uh, which I think you know may well come back to haunt him uh, in the weeks and months to come of what Manchester United's philosophy is, and that, of course, is attacking football, playing young players and winning trophies with X-factor players as well, added in just for good measure. I think we saw Manchester United in the first half yesterday who did dominate. Um, I wouldn't say that it was um, attacking football or uh, that it was necessarily um, great to watch for much of it because a lot of it was quite scrappy. They, they, they broke up the game quite well in their own final third and then the middle third and they pushed the ball wide um, to Daniel James uh, as much as they could as well in order to get some service. It worked in terms of going a goal up, but of course the players then dropped deeper and deeper. Um, I think as players, psychologically, I think we always see that, and especially in a big game, big derby game, we see a lot um, when a team is leading a, a, with a goal with 75 minutes left, players naturally drop deeper and try to defend rather than take the ball out and try and kill the game for 2-0. Now, the game ended up a draw, but tactically, Duncan, who would you see won the battle? I think Solskjaer, uh, in terms of pre-game, he got it absolutely right. Uh, as, I've, as I've already explained, he, he set his team up well. He used his forwards, his two forwards split, um, getting them to run between Liverpool's full-backs and centre-backs, knowing that Liverpool's attack is uh, very much focused on pushing those full-backs forward and that those full-backs deliver a lot of ball into the box from which Liverpool score goals or win set pieces and score goals from the set pieces. So, you know, it's a very, very astute plan, um, which we've seen Solskjaer do in the past. You know, he he got a number of good results in that um, record-breaking run he had um, when he first came in as manager against teams... um, who he might not have expected to get results against by playing similar sort of tactics. Um, Again, the problem you have with Solskjaer is he doesn't seem to have an ability to change the course of a a match in game. Um, And I don't think it was purely a psychological um, element of sitting back, uh, which cost them the points there. It was once Klopp had done what was pretty much the obvious thing to do, um, which was which was put wide players alongside his full backs um, to stretch the wing backs that that Manchester United were playing to give them two players going on to each wing back down down the wing instead of what is jet. Liverpool generally play very narrow in midfield and in attack. Their their forwards come inside and their midfielders all work inside to press the opponents. Um, and you don't see them playing a, a flat 4-4-2 very often, but in, no, in this particular game, that was the right solution. Um, so you can credit Klopp for getting the tactics right in the end, but I think actually the criticism should be he took so long to come up with that solution in, the, in that match, so he doesn't come out of it particularly well. And I don't think he comes out of it particularly well from his press conference um, in which he um, complained about Manchester United playing overly defensive football and um, how it's uh, it's always problematic for a team when they have to 
when you have to play against high quality players who are are focused primarily on defensive duties. He's right, but um, I think he should just accept that uh, he got it wrong on the day. Uh, Manchester United's players were certainly more aggressive and more motivated and more determined to get a result um, at the beginning of the game and and therefore got an advantage in the match. He was definitely unfortunate with the with the VAR decision, but it's not the worst VAR decision we've we've seen this season. Um, and you know. They are in. They remain in a very, very good position in the Premier League. They win their first eight games, and then they go to Old Trafford, which is a ground Jurgen Klopp has never won on, uh, and take a point. Uh, remain with a very significant advantage over Manchester City in the Premier League title race. A Manchester City team that has a lot of problems, a lot of injury issues uh, at present, and uh, and it remains uh, Liverpool's title to lose. Now, as most of us, or indeed all of us, know, um, Jose Mourinho began his career at Barcelona as um, Sir Bobby Robson's translator. And yesterday, he described Jurgen Klopp as having read the menu and expected meat but got fish. (laughs) Duncan, can we ask you to be Jose's translator, please, (laughs) and explain, if you can, what Jose meant by that comment? I think it's pretty self-explanatory. You don't need. Do you really need a translator for that one? I think some of us do. Yes. He, ex- he expected to go to Old Trafford and, and win and come away as the as the hero and finally get his uh, his victory um, over uh, his club's greatest rivals on, in their stadium and um, and he he didn't get what he wanted. Oh, he didn't get what he wanted. But that that is the classic. That is a proper translation. He didn't get what he wanted. Okay. And with Nashers like Jürgen, I think we know that he probably does prefer a good slice of steak to a bit of sea bass, so that's fair enough. Taking it away from uh, just the uh, tactical analysis, Duncan, um, as we said at the top of the uh, the pod, uh, Valerie, our old friend, um, caused more controversy yesterday um, with the, the video system referee decisions, not just at Old Trafford, but at Spurs versus Watford as well. Um, I think you were interested in uh, comments made by former Premier League referee Mark Halsey this morning with regards to um, VAR and uh, how that, uh, how he described uh, yesterday's, or sorry, the weekend's performances by um, those men sitting in a caravan somewhere next to Heathrow. Yeah, look, I think we're seeing now um, a large number of commentators on the game uh, stating openly what what we've been stating on the podcast for well over a year is that VAR doesn't work, um, and it's a problem, and it and it's it's a negative for the game, and and this is. I think this weekend of Premier League games is the second weekend of Premier League games where we've had a a, a range of bad decisions. Um, and errors, you know, even just simple technical errors, such as putting the wrong message up on the the stadium boards at uh, at naming rights lane after Deli Ali's um, goal had been reviewed, and and the decision was it wasn't a handball, and I'm not entirely sure they got that one right. Um, uh, I think it's questionable as to as to whether it caught him on the shoulder, as was claimed, or caught him um, on the upper part of his arm. And as we know, if it went on the upper part of his arm, then it should not have been a goal under um, the 
current laws of the game, as problematic as they are, um, and the current laws of the game, which cost uh, Sadio Mane his uh, his first half goal at Old Trafford, which uh, we haven't mentioned yet, but was you know another kind of end. The, the focus there was on whether it was a goal or not, but it was actually a very um, embarrassing moment for Manchester United's defence and the way they were opened up uh, and the mistakes that were involved in allowing Manny in for that. But you've got the you know the Jan Vertonghen foul and on Gerard Delafeo when Watford are a goal up, which was a clear penalty kick and which VAR refused to give. And and even um, Dermot Gallagher, the man who uh, is paid um, to come on Premier League television and uh, spent the majority of the season defending every VAR um, decision to the hilt and claiming that the technology is is millimetre perfect when it comes to offside, even though it's been um, clearly demonstrated that's not the case. Even Gallagher said that decision was wrong and uh, and the Premier League will regret it. Um, you have the Origi um, foul in the build-up to... Uh, Manchester United's goal, Victor Lindelof clearly fouls the player. Um, I think Klopp's argument on why it wasn't given was correct in the sense that um, you have the referee not making a decision on the field and the VARs refusing, even though they see a foul. Uh, on the monitor, as everyone saw, um, they refused to overrule it because they've been told only to overrule clear and obvious errors. Yet you have Johnny Evans um, getting a foul from the VAR against Burnley um, in a very similar instance because Chris Wood had, uh, in, well, in his case, I think inadvertently clipped Johnny Evans, whereas Victor Lindelof certainly hadn't done it inadvertently. Um, yet that one was given. As a, as a foul, that one the VAR overrules. The one at Old Trafford, they don't overrule. So there's not even consistency in application there. Um, and it is, you know, it, it, it's been one problem after another. And I, I think uh, Halsey is right in, in what he says and that it is an embarrassment to the Premier League. But it, it's not just an embarrassment to the Premier League, it's an embarrassment to football, it's an embarrassment to FIFA. Um, it does not improve the quality of the game. That's the, the bottom line. But Duncan, if it gets more decisions right than wrong, or more decisions right than it interferes with, is that not better for the game rather than just allowing mistakes to happen and saying, oh, well, that's just what happens when you have human error? Well, look, FIFA's argument is um, that it, if you bring in VAR, you get, what was it, 99.95% correct or 99.35% of decisions correct in the World Cup, um, which is clearly untrue. If you go through that, you will see that they're they're basically, um, uh, their biased interpretation is that everything VAR gives is correct, unless it's so blatantly, obviously incorrect that they had to admit it was wrong. Um, their own studies uh, before VAR was introduced on a global basis was that it improved uh, accuracy by around 4% over um, no VAR systems. Um, again, you can argue uh, about how they were assessing whether the decision was correct or not, but their own claim was you get a 4% improvement, which is not very much. Um, therefore, if it's only 
that degree of improvement. And, and I, I would accept that you get more decisions correct with VAR. But the question is, what are the costs for those that marginal level of increased um, accurate decision making? And the costs are huge. It's not just the financial cost of doing it, not just the impact it has on refereeing. We've seen that this season because the, the top Premier League referees have to work in the in the VAR studio as well. Um, they're essentially overworked now, and we've seen a, a referee not turn up for a match, um, and a, 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 a grade two referee have, have to be used in his place, um, effectively as a result of VAR. But it's the controversy, it's the, the delays in the decision-making, it's the, the fact that everything is now questioned twice. We almost every game we have a discussion over whether the VAR was correct or not. Um, the, the ramifications of somewhere down the line, a legal challenge um, over a VAR decision, as you, as you have mentioned on this podcast, because once you uh, change what has been the long-standing uh, way in which football uh, has governed itself, that the referee's decision on the field is final and you accept that the referee's decision isn't final and it's open to review, then you've uh, you've removed that that sort of baseline, we won't challenge referees. Um, and then the v, the operation of the VAR comes into question itself. And, and football is such a affluent game now. It is a business that, uh, as you have predicted, I, I think that the legal challenge won't be too far down the line. It, it's just you, you have to weigh the benefits of a few more accurate decisions, and that's all we're getting, a few more accurate decisions against all the costs and all the ramifications of bringing the system in. And in my view, you're better not to have the system. You're better to go back to the old way of refereeing games because the, the, the benefits are just not justified by the costs. I, I agree. I think the crux of the debate was very well um, summed up by United's opening goal against Liverpool. Um, the laws of the game are very clear. If a player is fouled, and Origi was clearly fouled um, by Lindelof when he took a, a toe to the knee inside of his knee in the build-up. Martin Atkinson indicates that he believes there was no reason to give the free kick and waves play on. United score a goal. But because they scored a goal, the goal is automatically reviewed by VAR. So they go back to the point where the ball is taken in possession by Manchester United. At that point, either the laws of the game are the laws of the game or they're not. That's absolutely got to be the case. A line has to be drawn and it's clear that Origi was fouled in the build-up. But what they did was they sided with the on-field referee, again, which I'm not against, in principle, but the fact of the matter is, if they're going to apply VAR, they have to do it fully, 100%, or not. And therefore, no goal should have been given, and a foul should have been given to Liverpool for the challenge on Origi. If we went back, as you said, Duncan, to where we just accepted the rule of the referee in terms of the interpretation of what he saw at the time, then we wouldn't even have a debate. Because the fact of the matter is, the referee didn't give the foul, Play went on, James crosses and Rashford scores, goal, that's it, end of it. But VAR creates its own controversy by the fact it didn't apply the laws of the game properly in not giving the foul uh, for Lindelof on Origi in the build-up. So I think it's 
true to say that sometimes, in most of the cases, VR causes more problems than it solves. Yeah, so you leave it to the referee and you say Atkinson got it wrong, but that's how it is. Referees get things wrong from time to time. When a guy with the benefit of slow motion replay, multiple angles, um, gets to see that there was a foul, as you say, there was a foul, and then decides, uh, I can't overrule that one because it wasn't um, absolutely clear it was a foul. It wasn't a clear, we're only going to overrule when it's so blatantly wrong we can't do anything else. Then people say, well, what's the point? <laughs> it's uh, why have this system anyway if exactly. you're not that, actually that going to point, apply Duncan. it you're right that is the point the point is if it's not going to um, correctly uh, deal with the laws of the game and therefore um, apply the laws of the game properly as they should be then what is the point of having it in the first place because these guys in the, the VAR um, decision making unit have the opportunity to watch multiple angles and decide okay, we must apply the laws of the game in the correct manner, and then they don't. So it's a double error. And as I said, what you do is you end up casting doubt on the, the actual match referee's decision, and yep. then the controversy of having was VAR wrong as well. And there's not a single Liverpool fan, or indeed a lot of fans throughout the country, uh, and commentators who would have said, well, that was the right decision by VAR not to take play back and give the foul on Origi. Yeah, I think the Vertonghen foul and Delafeo is a better example here. Yes, and that, that that's as, as clear a foul as you can get. It's a clear penalty. Yet VAR doesn't intervene because um, Premier League is set up in such a way that you, a high bar you only do it if you're absolutely clear. That one was absolutely clear. They should have intervened in in that case. But all we've seen VAR give in this Premier League season is. Um, probably incorrect interpretations of the handball rule, uh, the Laporte um, uh, goal uh, or the Laporte touch, a grazing of the arm, which uh, that, um, allowed the ball to fall to Gabriel Jesus um, for what should have been a winner against Tottenham, which nobody saw except VAR and, uh, and they overruled. And these incredibly marginal offside decisions, which have been... Um, scientifically demonstrated um, to be impossible to accurately make. That you know, the, as Mark Halsey says, it is an embarrassment, and the Premier League's got itself into this ridiculous position where they're not intervening with clear fouls, but they are intervening when for offsides that they don't actually know are offsides or not. And um, and these, you know, this stupid. Um, new uh, conditional version of the handball rule and, and intervening when people, nobody on the pitch sees anything, nobody in the, in the, in the, uh, the stadium sees everything, but a, a video operator with the benefit of slow motion and multiple angles can find a reason to chop off a goal. Well, people, you've heard our views, and of course, we love to hear you, your views as well. Please get in touch at Transfer Podcast at Duncan Castles, at Garb West, you on Twitter. Tell us what you think of Valerie and her many flaws and possibly some of her benefits, if that's what you think. Indeed, on all subjects we've discussed today, including um, Manchester to Liverpool, the Glazers and possible sale, as well as their pursuit of strikers in January. Um, as this is Monday's pod, as you well know, and you're all very, very much waiting for the heroes and villains, which we promise will not include 
video assistant referees. I'm going to hand over to Duncan for his hero of the weekend uh, before I give you my villain. Um, Duncan? Well, my hero of the week was going to be Cristiano Ronaldo for reaching 700 goals. Um, and uh, A worthy winner, a worthy winner. A worthy winner would have been, but he, let's face it, he's going to get 750 and 800 and go past <laughs> Joseph Beacon as the greatest scorer of official goals in all time. And he's probably going to, as Sergio Cruchinas predicted for us um, on our Portuguese special edition this summer, he's probably going to be the leading international goal scorer of all time before long. So we'll have another opportunity to do that. I'm going to go for Rafael van der Vaart who um, has, has been pointed out to me, has made some very uh, interesting comments on, on Harry Maguire, um, a player who Solskjaer, I think, very cleverly um, protected uh, by playing that back five um, at the weekend. And Maguire is much more effective when he's got two centre-backs beside him um, to uh, compensate for his positional errors and his lack of pace. But uh, Van der Vaart was asked about um, Maguire's price tag and his response was he can do something but if he's worth so much money Virgil van Dijk is worth £300 million if I'm going to play with the amateurs on Sunday afternoon I can easily find three who can do this I mean that seriously a bit silly to say but I really think so so there you go um, Raphael van de Vaart uh, analysis of Harry Maguire um, and he, uh, there's a, another little bit in here. Um, uh, he said, it's, it's funny because during the Nations League, I was doing work for Dutch television. And I remember we were saying Harry Maguire was by far the worst player on the pitch. And then two months later, 90 million for Harry Maguire. Well, uh, Raphael, we're going to try and get you on the podcast soon to um, just quiz you a little bit on that. But if you, in the meantime, you can just text us and let us know where you play your Sunday League football. I'd love to see that. <laughs> I'd love to see the guys that are Marco van Basten hammering the ball in from the by, the uh, byline uh, <laughs> on the on the on the full volley. Um, villain for me this week. Well, he's a he's a normal villain, but I'm going to say he's an anti-villain actually in this case. Our old friend Roy Keane, who um, thankfully has become a regular on Sky Sports as a pundit, the man who tells it as it is and pulls no punches. Um, just before the teams ran out at Old Trafford yesterday, he was absolutely disgusted to see several of the uh, opposing uh, players hugging, kissing, chatting, asking how their mums were, etc., etc and saying that's just no way to behave before a game like this. This is Manchester United Liverpool. You have to go out there hating each other so that you get the best out of uh, each and every one of your players. And if you want to chat, then do it after the game. Or maybe not. Don't just leave that as well. I'm with Roy Keane on this one. Uh, again, never forget uh, Highbury Tunnel uh, against Arsenal and Riviera, where he said, I'll see you out there, I'll see you out there. So my villain stroke, anti-villain for this week has got to be Keeney the Great. Uh, I'm sure Privet is with much more entertainment as the season goes on. Um, and uh, we hope certainly that he does. This has been Monday's Transfer Window podcast. We uh, very much value your company. And if you like what you hear, we know thousands of you do. Please, as you know, log on to iTunes, give us a five-star review. We expand the community and the debate and everyone is a winner, baby, that's for sure. Until Wednesday's podcast with your questions answered and please get them into at transferpodcast at duncancastles.garbosg. From now on, we'll be tweeting that out today as well. We will see you through the transfer window then. Thanks for listening. Yeah.